Good morning and welcome to The Home Show with me, Sinead Ryan. On the show this morning, what will the future of Irish cities look like? We'll be speaking with former Land Development Agency Chair John Moran about what's needed in Limerick, Cork and Galway in the coming decades. And if you share a home, Jennifer Sheehan will be helping us to diplomatically deal with different interior design tastes. And I'll be meeting the woman creating a photographic record of abandoned haunted houses around Ireland. If you'd like to get in touch with the show today, you can text us here at The Home Show at 53106. That'll cost you 30 cent. You can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you'll find me over on Instagram. And remember, you can listen live or listen back to the show, any of the items in it and our full podcasts on the Newstalk app, which is powered by Go Loud. Now, good morning, everyone. I don't know about you, but I frequently disagree with my other half on interior design and what we shouldn't and should buy for the home. He's kind of more of a traditionalist and I can be, uh, well, a little quirky. It doesn't always end well, but I love a splash of bright colour or a pop of texture on a cushion or a rug. And I love experimenting with different vases and pictures and all that kind of stuff. But what happens when you really can't decide who's right? Well, are there times you end up rowing about it? And how do you solve that? Well, don't worry. Our Jenny Sheehan is on hand later to clear up all of the design wars and to give us great advice. But let me know where you come to blows with your other half. Is it the colour of the walls or the stuff you buy from the kitchen or some really weird design choices? Me? Well, I'll just keep introducing my design bits and pieces and hope that he never notices. Why don't you get in touch with us today, 53106, or you can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. And you're very welcome along to the show this morning. How will Ireland's cities look in the future? Well, the government wants cities outside Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Waterford and Galway to grow by at least 50% by 2040, while various local groups commission grand visionary reports on how cities might look in 10 or 20 or 40 years' time. What is the reality and how easy is it to turn plans into workable reality, especially in this country? Well, my guest has seen action as a senior official in the Department of Finance. He's been chair of the Land Development Agency and has lobbied on behalf of Limerick City. Uh, So he has seen all sides of the argument. John Moran, you're very welcome back to The Home Show. Delighted to be here and thank you for the opportunity to chat about this really important stuff. Now, it is important. It's also very aspirational. Um, I mean, there's great big ideas here and I think a lot of the people who live in cities outside Dublin and, you know, would probably consider this about time and not before time. Um, These Ireland 2040 plans, especially as they focus on our other cities, do they set the tone right, do you think, or are they entirely aspirational? No, I, I think they get the tone right, but I think it's also important to be aspirational at the same time. Um, I mean, I think to some extent, we kind of sleepwalked our way through development in this country in the last 100 years. I mean, population was declining up to the with the beginning of the 70s, probably, and that meant we forgot about planning for growth. And then all of a sudden this growth happened. I mean, if you think about Galway, Galway was only like 30,000 in 1970. It's now nearly 80,000 people. And we just haven't really planned for that level of growth. We've just allowed sprawl to develop. And it's, I suppose, what we would call developer-led growth more than planning-led growth. And I think it's really important that we we have groups like the group that looked at, I know you you probably saw it, the, the 2070 plan for Galway mm-hmm. um, done by the Royal Institute of Architects. It's really important that they look far enough out 
and, and we have a sort of a big destination and a big plan, but not frightening people away from that, but by identifying sort of steps that you can take along the way. But then it becomes a coherent but a picture at the end of it. Mm. I think that's really important. Now, the level of growth that is planned here uh, in this and other documents, 40, 50 percent, um, is that realistic? I mean, I know that, that people in other cities can sometimes think we all suffer and the government can suffer from a bit of Dublinitis. Um, and I think it's probably laudable that we are developing uh, so much uh, around Ireland. But it's a huge leap, John, isn't it? Yeah, it's a big leap, but it's it's more of a, a, a leap in a, in approach, right? So so some things we can't control. I mean, in in many respects, you know, the growth in the population of Ireland, even over the next twenty years, is expected to be a million people, mm. and so a million people have to, in effect, choose to live someplace in in, in on the island. And if you think about it in a context, if 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 sort of you know fifty percent of those decided. To, to land into Limerick or even 100,000 landed into Cork. But that's still only 10% of the people that the growth in population deciding to live in, in Cork City, which is our second city. So, so these are perfectly achievable goals, but they don't happen by accident. Mm. So that's really the important thing about planning it. People are now moving to places <clears throat> that they want to live. And that's particularly so, I suppose, we've seen it since COVID. And so it's really important that the government use all the levers that they can to make those cities, which is desirable for that kind of growth, the most desirable places to live. And that means looking and really investing in the infrastructure there, the school systems, the health systems, the public transport systems. And and then people will choose to live there. And then, of course, once the talent is living in cities, mm. industry and jobs will follow. Well, now you were chair. Let's start with with Limerick because you were chair of Livable Limerick. I know the city is close to your heart as it is mine. Um, now you've done a lot of work down there, and I know there's been there's been a huge amount of development or, or you know thought put into areas around Colbert and um, in the city centre itself. What is planned? Um, in terms of of where Limerick is going. And I know transport is a massive issue and, and has to be really the cornerstone of all this stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, so so Limerick is a really interesting example. And thank you for, for, the, for acknowledging all the work that, that I, but lots of other people have been doing in terms of thinking about that city, right? So, so it's, Limerick is actually at a fork at the moment in terms of choosing its future. Um one future is to have much more compact urban growth, the type of growth that actually, in some respects, the Georgian Limerick set up for us, with you know all these little the urban blocks, four or five stories high, in in close proximity to each other, which allows services to, to develop around that, and and actually almost going back to the future, so to speak, by building on the railway infrastructure that was put in place at that time as well you could, in fact, have a city that could easily grow by 100,000 people, even more, without sprawling any further than it, than, than it currently has done. And basically, it's a lot of infill. But, but it requires some big decisions. And so if you take the work we did at the Land Development Agency, where we identified a very, very significant underutilized body of land at Colbert Station and CIE and the HSE and all the others, landowners were willing to work with the LDA to redevelop that. Initially, the architects, actually including David Brown, who was involved in this 2017 um, plan, 
imagine a neighborhood which could have 10,000 people in it, built out over the next over the next 20 years. The plans have evolved and everybody's had their say and everything else. And the most recent plan has reduced that level of ambition down to 5,000. And I don't think we properly converse about the choice that that involves. So, mm. so what that means is that if Limerick wants to build by 50,000 people, the, the challenge of building our Colbert Station, if it's done for 5,000 people, means that essentially in the next couple of years, Limerick needs to start building 10 Colbert stations, not yeah. just one to meet the 50,000. Whereas if we had done it in a more dense way, and it's not, I'm not talking Hong Kong skyscrapers. Again, we're talking about the type of infrastructure that you see in parts of Copenhagen and mm. that we love in the downtown in Paris and that. Um, you could actually have built only five Colbert stations, which of course is just a so much easier task. You mentioned there like that, that there's a lot of rebuilding. There are a lot of existing train lines there, uh, grassed over, kind of out of commission, that could be redeveloped. And I know that that is a key plank of the policy when it comes to Limerick. Do you think that we had more vision back 100 years ago than we have now? I mean, even getting these up and running, John, you're looking at massive, massive state subsidies. I mean, how, how realistic is that? Yeah, I, I think the vision is coming. I think, I think that people are finding it tough. I mean, the political cycle in Ireland is relatively short. I mean, it's four or five years between general elections. Local governments are about the same. Development plans are done for six years. And, and it's incredibly hard for people without you know, groups like the RAI and the engineers and the Land Development Agency laying out the picture and helping the conversation to develop. It's very hard for people to think forward. I mean, I remember saying someplace recently that there, by 2100, so I mean, you know, say 80 years from now, there's something like 8,500 properties at risk in Dublin for climate change. But for most people, 80 years from now, we're so far away that yeah. they don't think about that. Yeah. And of course, as you say, because the government cycle is, is five years, of course, it could be it's less more, at the moment <laughs> if they keep losing TDs overboard, um, that, that it can be very hard to plan. And that's where it gets difficult because the local politicians and the local people that are living there are thinking about what's good for themselves, yeah. naturally. Yeah. And they're not thinking about the 50,000 people who have to come to live in that area yeah. and what would work for both and how to get mm. that compromise. And that's tough. And I don't think we do that very well in Ireland. And one of the reasons we don't do it well is that we haven't devolved local government and local spending power to any extent in the same way as other countries. Yeah. I mean, in Ireland, 7% of all government spending is, is, is decided on and spent locally mm. in local authorities. And I know that you, you think that balance should be shifted to have more kind of local federalised local rather than I mean, federalised In a place like Denmark which we mm. all look over and say mm. Denmark's great great standard of living over 60% of funding is decided by your local council Yeah Now let's move to Galway because that plan ambition goes even further out um, you know right up to 2070 and it takes its inspiration from Freiburg in Germany as an example of, of how Galway could look. Tell me a little bit about what that would mean because, again, Galway is an area with massive transport issues. Yeah, so, so Galway is, is probably the classic um, city in Ireland in terms of the last 20, 30 years in terms of what's been happening 
and it's because it's at a slightly smaller scale than what's going on in Dublin, it's, it's, it's much easier to see that happening. So as I said already, it tripled in population effectively since the 70s. Lots of, you have the university growing very significantly downtown, the tourism sector, and a lot of really powerful um, industrial development in the FDI space in med science and, and high-end jobs that were really valuable to, to attract to the city and a good cultural you know, thing that, that sort of developed. But from a, from a planning perspective, it, there was really no investment in, in, in putting in place good public transport. People, therefore, relied on cars. That meant that the development tended to suit people in cars. I mean, you know, you take things, a simple thing like the Galway Clinic, which is, which is obviously a valuable medical um, center there. It's not really connected to the city very well. So you need to have a car in order to be able to work there or to go there. And that's not the way good cities work. So mm. Freiburg, by, by contrast, this German city that's been used as a, as, a, as a comparison, back in the same time frame, back in the 70s, they decided to make their downtown area of their city roughly comparable size, a much more pedestrian-friendly area. They prioritized pedestrians and public transport. If you had to have a car you didn't park it in a front drive because you didn't have a front drive to do that. You parked it in a, in a, in a parking lot um, or parking garage that was at the edge of your walkable mm. area. Mm. And of course, what happens is that 60% of the people in Freiburg now, 30 years later, don't drive a car and don't rely on a car. So the shops that we think of as being on the outer edges of Galway and all these suburban industrial estates and, and shopping centers, they don't exist because... The retailers have evolved as well to meet up with people mm. who actually don't drive cars. And so you walk to the shops, the shops are smaller, they do deliveries. Um, you have much more friendly, you know, urban space. And therefore, you're allowed to build and able to build at a higher density. So I yeah. think it's Galway's running a density of something like 13 dwellings per hectare at the moment. Whereas cities like Freeburg are at 100 and people love living there. And I think we, we have a fear in Ireland against that as well. And Is it hard to do that, though, John, without going high? Because I think if Irish people have a fear of anything, and maybe it's entirely misplaced, it's that idea that you don't want terror blocks, you don't want massive buildings that are going to take away from the sky view. Yeah, and I, and I think it's why it's really important that we find some exemplar developments that's what I think the Land Development Agency, for example, is doing. But Galway um, Council, Cork and indeed Dublin and Dunleary are all need to work together to do that. Because when Irish people go to live abroad, I mean, we very rarely look for a semi-D with a garden and two cars and such. We're happy. And if I want to live in, in apartments or, or downtown in Sydney or in Paris or in other cities, you know, so I think it's not... Like, it's not our DNA is incapable of changing. It's just that the way in which we provided housing in Ireland in the past has naturally led people to do the logical thing, which is to buy into the type of housing that we have and that we serve. Yeah, so, yeah. and look for the I, front I, and back garden and the three-bed semi because exactly. we've been so I, poor I, at providing spaces. Plan that they, that the 2017 plan for Galway is what they have tried to do is not to do what we sometimes have done in the past where we've literally bulldozed out whole neighbourhoods and communities and tried to rebuild them. They've tried to identify areas where there was significant vacant or underutilised land, uh, like Redmore, for example, and rethink that area 
so that it could actually develop this higher density over time without, as I say, driving in the bulldozers and, 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 yeah. and disrupting whole communities yeah. and like we used to do down in Limerick. I mean, to be <laughs> sad about it in the regeneration areas and it just hasn't worked. And yeah. so yeah. you have to evolve the communities because they exist already and, and maintain the existing community, but add to it. Now, when it comes to Cork, that is already a large, vibrant city. And in fact, they have it seems to me, led the way in terms of planning, pedestrianisation of areas. I mean, it's really quite beautiful um, in Cork City at the moment. Do you think, you know, what more is needed there to, to create a template uh, that you're talking about? Yeah, so I, I think I think they've identified a lot of the great stuff in Cork and fair play to, to, to them in the last number of years. I think they've really embraced a lot of the, these ideas we've been talking about. I, I think there's been an very valuable decision to invest in a lot of the public infrastructure, public transport infrastructure, sorry, in Cork. And you're starting to see talk about light rail and, and that servicing some of the towns outside of Cork, which, of course, is all hugely valuable because it means that people living in those towns then drive to the local train station and get a train, a, a frequent and a, and a, and a good service in, into the city centre. Equally importantly in Cork, and this is, is going to be key, I think, to the success of, of what they're doing. There's a massive focus on the redevelopment of the Docklands and the area around the central train station. And and obviously Cork has, has significant challenges on the on the climate change side. So so that needs to be done again in a future proofed way. But if it but it can be done and it's done in other cities all the time. But but this idea has very much taken on now in Cork of of having an urban experience for people. They live in, in an area, they walk to the shops, they walk to their restaurants, they, and, and indeed feeding that, that desire that people have to live in urban spaces is, is part of their plan to put, I think it's 10,000 or, or more um, dwellings in, in, the, in the area right next to the train station. And, yeah. and that, that's going to be a massive game changer for yeah. Cork. To be it able to it do is that. and it, it makes such a difference when you're down there and I think probably they responded maybe to this whole outdoor dining thing during COVID when we were all forced outside and, and they just made a thing of it. It wasn't like we have to do this, it's let's let's make it as good as we can be. Now you're away from state clutches now uh, John, uh, is there enough joined up thinking in government to get all of this stuff achieved? Um, I go back to my point about the devolution of power to local authorities. Right. I mean, if you think about what happened in Cork, it happened because, in effect, it was decided locally to do something. But they still had to go back to Dublin looking for money to do that. I mean, this this just isn't what should be happening. Um, I, I, as you know, I've been a, a strong advocate for the directly elected mayor. mayor. Yep. Um, in cities like we've just talked about, I think that's critical. I think it's 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 really disappointing that Limerick is waiting over three years now. Um, to see even the first draft of the legislation on that and to have real powers Indeed. transferred down to the city. But equally, it's a bit like our housing developments and things like that. We need this to, stuff to happen more quickly because we need it to work and to show other places that it can work. And and like with the housing developments, we need to get that devolution of power, need to have that election and just drive on. And, and I think the, the joined up thinking is really supposed to happen differently. I mean, there's no point in a, in a load of people sitting around the table in, 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 in Marion Square trying to decide what Galway should look like or yeah. Cork should look like. It should be done locally. But what they should be doing is making it clear to the people locally 
but they have the funding to make the changes that they want to do to be different and to be yeah. to be ambitious and that they also need to do so on a much longer time frame and I get in fairness to the to the people in the department of housing at the time of, of project Ireland 2040 probably the first time I remember um, you know us actually having a 20 year plan and putting funding aligned to it as well. So yeah, yeah. and then it's irrespective of who's in power, what government is there, exactly. how the transition because happens. Because at least if we know what it's going. The only issue that I would have about the 2040 plan is it needed to have a 2070 or 2080 plan, a little bit more vague, but explaining how we're going to do it. How we're going to do and how it'll look. All right. Well, listen, John Moran, former chair of the Land Development Agency, I wish you well in the future and uh, for for the work you have done so far, particularly when it comes to uh, Limerick, of course, which I know and love as much as you do. And thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Home Show. pleasure and thanks again. Still to come on The Home Show, do you believe in ghosts? My next guest has spent nearly 15 years exploring abandoned houses and photographing them. Chat to you in a few moments. And you're very welcome back to The Home Show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan. Before the break, I was speaking with John Moran. Very interesting ideas on the future development of our regional uh, cities. And it's worth listening back to that. If you missed it, you can do that on uh, the News Talk app, which is powered by Go Loud and The Home Show. And all of our shows and podcasts are there. Uh, and uh, please do that. Now, if you're interested in old houses, uh, we talked a lot there before the break about repurposing old buildings and reusing what we already have. Will you be fascinated by my next guest? Rebecca Brownlee is a photographer who documents abandoned houses in stunning camera visuals and she joins me on the line now. Rebecca, you're very welcome along to the Home Show. Hi Sinead, thanks for having me. Now, tell me a little bit about how you got started in Mm -hmm. photography. Well, it took a wee bit of a turn. So initially, maybe 14, 15 years ago, I was part of a paranormal group. Um, so I was a team location finder and photographer for that group. I came across a stunning Gothic manor house in Larne in County Antrim called Carnegie House. And this is the first house that really captivated me. I couldn't understand how is something like this. For one, it doesn't look like it should be in Northern Ireland. It looks like, you know, like an American horror. You know, house, if you ever watch American Horror Story, it, it looks like something from that. Um, I couldn't believe, one, that it was in Northern Ireland, two, it had been abandoned, and then, number three, I really wanted to know who lived in this and what the history was. So that was the first one that really grabbed me, and I thought, there's more to this than just looking for ghosts, you know, I'm more interested in the history of the house, how it looks, who lived there, and telling the complete story. So that was the first one that steered me in the direction of just doing the documentation photography. So a paranormal group. So you're a bit of a, you were a bit of a ghost hunter. Was it like just what yeah. fascinated you that that evocation of past lives and and past spirits who'd lived in these places? I think so. Um, when I was younger, I've always had an interest in the paranormal. When I was younger, I had a few personal experiences. So then that drew me to joining the group. And then once I joined the group, I was maybe in it for a couple of years and we did lots of old castles around Ireland and, you know, um, hotels, homes, doing investigations. But that Carnegie House was the first one that it really got me and there was more to this. And that's when the project of Abandoned NI started and I stopped the paranormal and just focused on this. Do you ever get the sense when you're in some of these buildings photographing them, which in and they must be dusty and cold and dark 
that there is something else going on there, you know, maybe in a different dimension or, or in a different sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not every place, no, but some. It's usually the places that you think don't look sinister that are the ones that I find are. And um, you feel unwelcome. And if I do feel that, I do leave. You know, just out of respect. If there is someone there, they don't want me there, so I, I will leave. Leave it at that, yeah. What is it that you sense? Just like you can feel like a cold energy or like you're being watched. Someone's maybe close behind you. Um, it depends on the property. But yeah, you feel someone's there. They don't, they don't want you there. Has photography ever been able to capture any of this kind of ethereal sense? I know that I've seen lots and lots of photographs where maybe a double exposure happened or, you know, it looked yeah. as if maybe there was a, a shadow lurking in the background. Have you mm-hmm. have you ever had anything that resulted in, in that in a photograph that you've taken? Yes. Yes, I have one and that's on my website. So uh, this was a convent school that I was in. The place was secure. Um, there were security guards. There was cameras. They let me in via a key. Um, so there was only me and another person in the building at the time. Uh, there was three or four stories. We were on the third floor and I had been in a canteen which had a glass door now, in the canteen, there was nothing in it. It was a shell. I just walked in, one door in, one door out. Nothing in it. Nobody could could have been hiding in there. You know, it was just walls. So I walked out, closed the door of the canteen behind me and walked down the corridor and turned around and looked at the canteen door. So there was a lovely banister to my left. You can see that in the photo. So I am taking a photo of the glass door, the banister on my left and like red carpet take that shot and then I move one step to the right and take the same shot again, slightly different angle. That's okay. Go around the convent school, do the rest of the explore, come home that night and edit the photographs. And I look at the first photo of the canteen door and the second one. The second one, you see a figure of a woman. It's the profile of her looking through the glass door. But not only that, the curtain, there's a curtain to the left of the door and on the photo that she's in, it's pulled to the left. So even that has moved. It's like someone's grabbed it. So um, it's on my website and you must look at it. And you're certain there was nobody there? 125%. And not a camera malfunction? No, it couldn't be. It couldn't be. You know, you look at it and see what you think. I've also had audio as well, voices coming through. There was a, an old adventure centre. And it was me and my sister. It was back in the early days when I just sort of started. And she was recording on an iPad while I was taking the photos. And uh, there was dormitories. So this place was used in its later years for children to come down in the summertime, you know, for two weeks away, like summer camp. Uh, So there was dormitories. We were walking down, rooms on each side. We'd come to the end of the corridor and I opened the door. And you can see in the video me opening the door, which is just a toilet or something. And as we open the door, we hear a male voice right beside us. And you can hear it on the video. And you can hear me saying, that wasn't me. Did you hear that? And she said, my sister said, that wasn't me. So we played it back, played it back. And we could hear the male voice, but we couldn't hear what he was saying. So I got home and played it on a speaker. And it's a man. And he's saying, you are crazy. <gasps> yep. Right. He's calling me crazy. Is he right? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think he is. But, um, <laughs> you know, how do you explain that? We know 
that personal experience. Yeah. We know that there's no one else there. We couldn't explain that. So before it was the Adventure Centre, it was a priest training college. And the man, to me, sounded as though he had an Ulster accent, whereas mm-hmm. we were down south. And um, I couldn't really figure that out. So I would do talks and stuff in Belfast about this project. And I spoke about this and let them hear the video. And a girl said, I know where that is because there was a local priest to me went down to that college to train. So there was people from Belfast would have gone down and trained and whatever and come back up. So. Right. So some echo of the past, you believe, that was there. And now we've a lot of haunted buildings, uh, we're told, around Ireland and castles, particularly because we've such an ancient heritage. I think probably the best known is is Loftus Hall. Um, yeah. Have you had a chance to photograph that or is that is that on your to do list? It's uh, was on the to do list. I think it's now it could be turned into a hotel, unfortunately. Mm. And do, and do you think the spirits will go with it or? Or will they depart? I don't think so. I think they'll stay. Right. OK, so guests might get more than they bargained for if they if they go and stay there. Uh, Rebecca, uh, where can people find out a little bit more about you and see your work? Yeah, well, I'm on Facebook as Abandoned NI, same name on Instagram, or have my own website, which is AbandonedNI.com. All right. And fascinating it is, I must say, and also beautiful, um, which I suppose is the purpose of art in the first place. Rebecca Brownlee, thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning with that spooky tale on The Home Show. Thank you. Coming up next, Agony Aunt Jennifer Sheehan will be sorting out those interior design rows. As always, if you have questions, problems or queries about your home, email them to us here at The Home Show at Newstalk.com and text us at 53106 for 30 cent. Join me back here in a few moments. And you're very welcome back to the Home Show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan. Yes, let's call the whole thing off. Well, let's not call the whole thing off. But there is no doubt uh, that having differing views on your interiors and everything else can lead to dissent among some couples. Well, don't worry about any of that. Jennifer Sheehan, Home of the Year winner, is with me in studio (laughs) to solve all of the marital disputes. You're very welcome to the Home Show, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. I don't know if I'm qualified to speak on this topic. Having done it solo, I didn't have to worry about anybody else's opinion. I know. It's very, it's a nice position to be in because yeah. you can decide what you want to do, where you want things to go and you don't, yeah, it doesn't matter what anybody didn't else Didn't have think. to think twice. Except didn't your little doggy. Except my little dog. He had some strong opinions. Yeah, he's changed things. So uh, when it comes to interiors though, because um, asking for a friend, <laughs> <laughs> um, I have had my fair share of um robust <laughs> exchanges of views <laughs> over cushion covers and paint colours and all that kind of thing. I go with the tack of just wearing him down. Is right. that, is that, a, is that yeah. a useful way it's to, a to way. proceed? <laughs> How's it going? Uh, so, uh, it's win-lose. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, so I mean it is different. Look, you're, you're joining a household maybe and, and I think maybe this is harder if you're not a kind of brand new first time buyer loved yeah. up couple in your 20s yeah. it's it's harder when you're kind of coming together maybe in your 30s or 40s or later and you very established views on all sorts of things yeah. but definitely on the space that you want to curate around And you. it's important it's your home you're spending most of your day there almost all your day there now you know post yeah. the unmentionable yeah. so it's not it, it might sound trivial, cushion covers and paint and all that kind of stuff, but your environment that you spend most of your time in, it is a reflection of yourself and it is a reflection of, of your partner and you want to both feel comfortable there. So it, it is important. So give us some um, tips then 
that I can pass on right. for, <laughs> for people who might find this more challenging than others because it is important to take other people's views into account and yeah. especially if you're merging two households that you know you've two sets of dishes and two sets of yeah. googaws and two sets of chairs and all. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so I would say start by staying respectful because I think it can sound contentious coming together and you want pink <laughs> yeah. and I like fur and I only want dark and there, you could easily come to the table with a lot of assumptions about your partner with a lot of you know strongly held I'm not giving up on my pink bathroom or my you know velvet chaise long or whatever it might be so I'd come open minded stay respectful and remember that their opinion isn't wrong it's a subjective now you say that I know you're <laughs> it's right subjective. of course <laughs> now that's easy for me to say I have a trophy to say my opinion is in fact very right about these things but <laughs> yeah, it is a subjective thing so you know open minded come to the table okay. open minded right now and if you can't do that hire a professional 100% hire okay. a professional <laughs> because then everything can be well she said my, my interior designer said this was the right thing to do <laughs> yeah okay. and if we text them in the background been like here can you just tell him to please ditch the black oh, whatever you tell her to do okay. so hire an interior actually, designer actually that's a great idea therapist. because they can act not only as a referee but as a kind of a dissenting voice saying you're both wrong here's how you should you're be doing both it wrong. Yeah. and also the skill in blending styles can't be underestimated because, you know, first of all, creating any space is difficult and then taking two or a number of tastes into consideration is is not that easy either. So the skill involved is, is really not to be underestimated and it could save you money, divorce money, whatever else money in the long run. You never know. <laughs> all right. OK, so lists and prioritising and what to do first and how to go about a redesign. Yeah. So I think one of the easiest ways to come to the table open minded without assumptions and to really put forward what you want is to sit down together early in the process and just make a list and say it's absolutely vital that I have a big massive couch that I can chill out mm. in, in the evenings mm. it's big for me I want a huge TV because I love watching the match at the weekends I the garden space is very important to me and you know whatever it might be just put everything down in the list and again don't assume that your partner or your friend or your housemate or whoever you're doing this with uh, don't assume that they won't like what you like or don't assume yeah, what they like you don't know if you have a list of kind of here's here's my no-go here's my red line stuff I have to have this 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 you might find that you agree on more than you thought yeah it could yeah exactly who doesn't like a big squishy couch for instance who doesn't like a nice clean kind of granite top in their kitchen you yeah. know yeah and it's it's a lovely way to discuss how you want to spend your time together as well. You know, if it's if it's important to maybe you learn about your again, your partner or your friend or whoever you're living with, you might learn that that evening time, you know, talking to you across the kitchen table or uh, playing board games with you at the dining table. M maybe you find out and you learn through this process that that's very important to them and that's a way that they feel connected to you uh, or valued. And so that's, you know, it's again, it's, it's an important thing. Should you be allowed a veto? Yes, 100%. Right. 100%. How many vetoes do I get? <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Yeah, like choosing anything, like yeah. choosing your so kid's name. So you have names, to have one that said, look, name. honestly, I'll go with this, this and this. I, you know, I'm not mad about it, but I hear you, but I'm definitely not going. We're not know, installing a cinema in the basement. Exactly. No, yeah. Not. So okay. the one thing I will say about a veto, right, is definitely have them. But if there's something that is of utmost importance to you or the other person, Think about, is there a way that that thing could potentially be transformed? Mm. So if they say, I am absolutely obsessed with having, you know, a big uh, lazy boy friend style in the middle <laughs> of the sitting room, could it be covered in a different fabric? Could it be uh, decorate? Could, could you get your way when it comes to putting cushions or throws? Could it go in a different place? I think before you absolutely outright say, 
complete veto on that, depending on how out there the idea is. Maybe there's a way that that item can come to some kind of a compromise and be something that both of you end up actually liking. OK, or or maybe suggest something that's so much worse <laughs> that, <laughs> that you could kind of learn to row back and say, actually, the lazy boy doesn't sound You're so bad. You're cheating. You're trying to throw off their vetoes. You're trying to use off their vetoes. Oh, listen, this isn't my first rodeo with this stuff, right? OK, um, so then stuff that maybe the big ticket items so the stuff yeah. that's going to cost you a lot of money that could be the sofa it could be the kind of not very large TV hopefully yeah. the table and chairs in the kitchen uh, is it best maybe to keep that stuff neutral and yeah. safe for sure so things that are harder to change around I think it's really important you know you might get your way on prints on cushions on whatever it might be but things that are more difficult to change more expensive to sw- to switch in and out I think you both really want to love those things because of the aforementioned hard to switch out, really expensive to change. And I think keep them more neutral. Like it's it's not really something massive isn't the area where you want to be overridden and have something that you don't like. You want to like your couch. You want to like your kitchen table. So th- I think keep them more neutral and then really get your way on the things that can be changed because you might, you know, you might back down in a year or two and you might, at the time it might be more important to be right. <laughs> And you need a bargaining chip for the future, for sure. (laughs) All right, Jennifer, I don't know how anybody could fall out with you and your design. So, Oh, they do. (laughs) Believe me, they do. I I am sure that that is good food for thought. (laughs) And if you are in a relationship that does have those minor disputes, remember, it is not the end of the world. Okay. (laughs) now, one thing which, of course, everybody seems to like, uh, I think, around the house and people love are the candles. And, you know, the candles on the surfaces and the smelly candles and the little tea light candles and all of the different things. And they're so much variety out there but it strikes me that a lot of the candles that come there's an awful lot of waste I love the ones in the glass jars or the you know there's very little you can use it for afterwards and and you're tending to throw out this glass which is expensive to make in the in environmental terms when the candle is burnt down but actually you have some great ideas about reusing yeah uh, because they are, I mean, they're, like especially that. the glass ones, you're dead right. They're gorgeous and it's such a booming industry since. since. Pa- Do you have candles on the go? I have candles on the go all of the time. And I remember last year we had in uh, Rathbourne, the, the oldest candle makers in Europe. I yeah. think we had them in the show and they were just absolutely fascinating talking about their processes and and everything that they do was a really really lovely item from beeswax to, Mm. you know, to kind of Joe Malone. Yeah. And uh, it's such an ancient um, item. And yet here we are using them in exactly the same way. Uh, Just slight tweaks on them more for design than light. Um, But everybody loves candles. Yeah. And it's a great gift. You really can't go wrong giving somebody a candle. I mean, if you're stuck, it's, you know, I always love getting them because they're consumable and you don't necessarily have to you know, rearrange your interior decor to accommodate them in the way that some presents do. But yeah, so sometimes you're left with this jar and you don't necessarily want to recycle your glass jar because they're gorgeous. Some of them are beautiful. Those Mm. diptyque Mm. designs, they're just, they're fabulous. So anyway, you can keep them and you can, you know, burn it down to the last and keep them. So start by cleaning the jar out. Now that's it. Let me start with that because I don't, (laughs) I don't know how to do that because you're left with this tiny kind of circlet of wax on the bottom. You can't, the wick isn't catching anymore. Yeah. Uh, So how do you melt that 
waxed cleared out before and it's kind of sooty isn't it oh, it's hard to scrape it, it out yeah so you could go at it with a teaspoon or something sharp and really just kind of chip away at it until until it's gone or you could put it in a hot water bath and let the candle melt let the wax melt and scrape it out with something you know it's, it's probably going to take a few tissue papers it might not be the most Great environmentally friendly way to do it today Jennifer's doing lots of scraping hands <laughs> And if you put it in a freezer, the wax contracts and it just basically falls out and you, oh, can, you can get it course, out a lot easier. Right. So I'd yeah. say try the freezer and then go at it with a little teaspoon and see, can you chip away at it and get it to come out? And that should probably be the least messy way okay, of doing it. Because sometimes the wick is held in it like a metal um, stud yeah, at the end. And that's going to be glued be, yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. It can be glued on, but usually it isn't. Usually it's just dipped in the wax and it's stuck onto the bottom yeah. of the wax. So it okay. should come out pretty easily. So cleaning it first. Um, Clean it first. And, yeah. and make sure then that you get your glass jar back. Um, yeah, and and back to to kind of uh, what is what now? What are we going to do with this now that we have well, these then, lovely shaped glass? Jars? You're left with a beautiful glass jar that you can do anything with. So you can store. So I think storing them, for example, your toothbrushes in the bathroom, your cotton buds, your face wipes. I think makeup brushes. If you're you know if you're somebody who stores makeup brushes, mm. I'm not. I've had the same makeup sponge since about 2006. But <laughs> if, you know if you're more organised person than I am, then they're perfect for that type of storage, and they look really nice when they're sitting out. You know, if they're if they're on your bathroom shelf or they're on your vanity or something, you've got mm. this gorgeous star and perfect for that kind of storage, I think. And of course, there's a whole range of, of paints now that you can paint glass yeah. with. There's acrylic paints that you can you can paint glass with and there is uh there is glass paint that you can you can paint it on and you can put it in an oven and bake it on, a ceramic paint. And that makes it very, very durable. You know, so if, even if, if you wanted to completely change it up, if you have mm. a fairly plain glass jar that you don't want to throw out or if you want to write something on it you could you know if you're a labeler or <laughs> if you're one of those organized people you can yeah you make it uh, and of course we're coming into the summer now hopefully there'll be a lot of outdoor dining and one of the nicest things you can do i think is put a little you know the little citronella tea lights into yeah. those glass and just dot them all the way over the garden because they won't blow out yeah if it's already in a candle jar because that's what it was used for uh, and it can be nice just to put them at different different levels really yeah. isn't it or hang them because those citronella candles the ones that keep the insects away I'm all about that mm. I, I, mm. anyway the ones that keep they're not the nicest looking things always they can be you know these kind of big yellow lumps and they might not go but yeah you're absolutely right those little tea lights then will fit perfectly in that jar yeah. and, you, and you can dot them in a circle around you so that no yes. insect <laughs> dare encroach uh, on you okay uh, no so other things then plant you can plant in them of course one now, can I will be careful about drainage and things like that but, but there's no reason that you couldn't put a little cactus or something in a little bit of soil in those in those uh, jars either. Yeah, or do you know what could be lovely? So yeah, you have to worry about drainage. And what could be really nice is, you know, those kind of, uh, they're the lovely beads and they soak up water and they're a nice colour and you can put maybe, you know, clip the end of your fresh flowers and put them in there and that could be a really nice little temporary vase you know just for a couple of roses heads or something I mean, like how, that how many times have you seen one of those boho weddings you know those outdoor kind of hippy dippy things and you have like <laughs> these jam jars all over trestle tables only on Instagram I've never been to one of them myself but all those little jam jars but but equally candle jars would Can, work just yeah. as well wouldn't they they'd be gorgeous yeah and they're lo- you know again they're different shapes different sizes different patterns but they're all quite a similar you know, roughly in the same kind of family. So they go together, like yeah. that nice mixed collection goes together. And then I think as well for, for plant pots, you can have, you know, those little pebbly bottoms that you can put underneath succulents and that kind of takes care of the drainage as well. Yeah. And that I think that can look really beautiful, especially if it's glass and you can see through it. Because mm. you don't want to be looking at soil. Mm. You don't want to be looking at roots, mm. you know, but there are lovely... Lovely pebbles, lovely little wooden shaving type things that, that hold water well yeah. and also take care of that drainage. And it looks gorgeous. It does. 
Oh. For someone else, I'd be putting dried flowers in there, just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 because you don't want to kill them. Don't uh, kill them. That's brilliant. OK, well, look, I mean, we're all for reusing, upcycling, recycling, but that's a really kind of cheap and easy ways to reuse something that is is already in your house. You already have candles lying around the place and rather than chucking them out... Just yeah. give a little bit of thought to doing something a little bit different. And maybe this is a call out for candle companies to make reusable packs because people love making candles, don't they? Yeah. Like that yeah. DI, the whole candle industry, I really felt it exploded over lockdown. Mm. Like everybody seems to be making candles. But maybe it's something for the candle makers to consider is that once somebody has your lovely jar and your really nicely branded jar, yeah. that maybe it's something you could send out as like a little pack of those wax refills. Yeah. All right. Well, Jennifer Sheehan, thank you very much for bringing us those hints and tips. And you're definitely not going to fall out over that. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm nearly sure. And that is all we've time for on the show uh, this morning. Anton Savage is up next and uh, we will be back next week at eight. And in the meantime, please do get in touch with us if you have any ideas for tips or guests or topics you'd like us to cover. F53106 for 30 cent or email us during the week at the home show at newstalk.com. We will read every single one of them and we will see you all again next week.